Welcome to Alaska Black Caucus. Authentic, bold, committed. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. Good evening. I'm Lisa Rush, a member of the Alaska Black Caucus, serving on the Health Committee, an organization that champions the lives of Black people in the areas of health, economics, justice, and education. Thank you for joining us for tonight's community conversation, Racism is a Public Health Crisis. Please remember that the conversation is being recorded for rebroadcast, so please keep yourselves on mute. If you have questions, please use the chat. We are thrilled to welcome Joe Prevail, a third-year Canadian-American medical student at Washington State University, Ellis, I'm sorry, Elson S. Ford, Floyd School of Medicine. Joe is committed to fighting health disparities in medicine through education and regularly shares topics about racial disparities and biases in healthcare and other industries on his TikTok and Instagram, where, he, where his platform has over 400,000 plus combined viewers, followers. Joe has been named by TikTok as the top 2021 voice, of, voice for change and was featured by TikTok as one of the 10 change makers. Welcome, Joel. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here um, and to see everyone. And um, feel free to ask questions throughout the conversation. I'm gonna be having a presentation, so I'll share my slides now. And how this is gonna work is I'm, I'm gonna kind of be popping both in and out of the um, slides to show videos, and then also be talking about um, some of the, the content that I have here on the slides. But so feel free to ask questions. I'll be keeping an eye on the chat. This, this conversation is about new media, new advocacy, how racial bias is being tackled in medicine. And I always like to give a little bit of disclosure. Um, I don't receive any funding uh, from TikTok specifically other than the TikTok Creator Fund. And then I did get a grant from TikTok, but no formal affiliation. TikTok probably doesn't even know I'm here today. So um, hopefully no conflict of interest there. But I do like to say, if you want to follow me, um, if you don't know me already, feel free to follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Joel Brevel. So the objectives for this conversation are going to be to examine how medicine has been both complicit and a reflection of inequities in our society. And then we've heard it a lot, but really diving into the ways that it happens, how it's built into our systems, and how that can actually impact care that patients receive. We're going to understand the history and use of race-based medicine and how in present day, it still continues to impact the care that patients receive. And we're going to analyze and brainstorm solutions to maintaining health equity from a public health and medical standpoint. So um, I, once again, here's my kind of information. I'm a medical student right now in, in my third year, and I've always been interested in disparities um, from a young age. I think partly because both my parents are from Ghana, West Africa. And when I was young, uh, my siblings and I started a nonprofit where we would actually go to Ghana and do work there. And I think just being able to see how hospitals worked differently in a country like Ghana versus in the United States um, and the care that was able to be received or not be received there was fascinating to me. And so that really started my impetus for um, understanding health disparities. As I kind of grew older, when I went to college, I went to Yale University for undergrad, I started taking classes on disparities that existed on the business of healthcare um, and why it's seen as a business and um, the, the disparities that can exist there, how insurance and people's lack of insurance can impact the care that they receive as well. So it's been a wonderful journey. And now I use social media to really highlight these issues in, in a more um, pressing way. 
And for me, uh, I think it was really the events of um, last year and two years ago that encouraged me to start using my platform um, to have a different voice. I was in my first year of medical school when all the events um, kind of happened uh, with things like um, Ahmed Aubrey being killed. Um, and we saw the recent outcome of that, thankfully, um, and George Floyd and all the process that, that were happening around that as well. I think those really drove me to want to do something more than just be a medical student. I wanted to share my voice into the national conversation, especially seeing that in the field of medicine, less than 5% of all physicians are black. And I, at my medical school, I was the first black medical student at my school. Um, and even today, we, we still have less than 5% of students in our school that are black. So I think all those things were on my mind as I started to take to social media to talk about these issues. But in order to really understand um, how racism is built into our systems and what we can do to kind of fight against it, we have to begin with where they even started from. We have to identify the source of the problems in the first place um, and understand how the racial biases have rolled over into today's medical practice. So we're gonna be starting all the way back, way back in history um, to understand who were the players that actually made this happen. And there were multiple scientists who defined race, ranging from Carlos Linnaeus, who was an 18th century Swedish naturalist um, who defined four types of people, to Johann Blumenbach, who was a German scientist and coined the term Caucasian in 1795. There was Samuel Morton, who was an American anthropologist. And then there was Samuel Cartwright, who defined mental illnesses like drapedomania. And I'll dive a little bit more into each of these people. But today, all of these people's legacies still have impacts in some way, in the way that we think about race, in the way that even medicine thinks about race as well. So let's start with Carlos Linnaeus. Um, in this, Carlos Linnaeus was an 18th century Swedish naturalist. And what he did was he defined four different types of people. He was among one of the first scientists to sort and categorize human beings. And that became the foundation for many countries, including the United States, and how we built our own racist policies. So Linnaeus divided Homo sapiens into four basic varieties, primarily based on geography. Um, and interestingly, not in a ranked order favored by most uh, Europeans of that time. So he said Americanus was kind of the top, and then Europeus, Asiaticus, and then Afer or African. And he actually didn't really rank them in a way, he just kind of put those names out there. But then he categorized these groups even further by noting color, color the four humors, um, and posture, and in that order. So we can see that here, skin color, humor, and posture. And Linnaeus used the four humors, which are um, kind of these medieval theories that a person's temperament arises from a balance of our four fluids that we have in our bodies. Blood, phlegm, choler, which is yellow bile, and then melancholy, which was at the time black bile. And depending on which of the four substances dominated, that's how you defined a person. So if they were sanguine, they could be cheerful um, in the realm of blood. If they're phlegmatic, they could be sluggish, or um, if they're choleric, they could be prone to anger. And if they're melancholic, they'd be sad. So really these, this balance of fluids that were in our bodies, that's what he was thinking about. So four geographic regions, four humors, that led to the four races. For the American variety, as we see here, he wrote that people were red, uh, Americans were red, choleric, and straight. Um, for the Europeans, he said white, sanguine, and muscular. For Asiaticus, he said yellow, melancholic, and stiff. And for Africanus, he said black, phlegmatic, and lazy. And Linnaeus then ended each of these groups' descriptions with a more overtly racist label. So for Americans, he said they were ruled by habit. For Europeans, he said ruled by custom. Asians ruled by belief. 
and for Africans ruled by caprice or impulse. And I'm sure you can see how each of these kind of beliefs about these people have even continued till today. When we think about the stereotypes of different racial groups, a lot of them are built on the things that Linnaeus said centuries ago. So I think it's important to first understand this because it helps us understand where did even race and the idea of race and all these assumptions about race stem from in the first place. Then we move on to Johann Blumenbach. He was a German scientist and he, turned the, he coined the term Caucasian in 1795. Blumenbach built on what Linnaeus started. While Linnaeus didn't necessarily say that there was a ranking in the order, uh, Blumenbach did. He said that Caucasian individuals um, were the most beautiful race and they were the most original race. And thus far, thus because of that, there was a hierarchy where they stand out at the top because they were the most beautiful. Um, and he divided all humans into five groups, Caucasian for light-skinned people from Europe, uh, Mongolian for people from Asia, including China and Japan, Ethiopian for people that were dark-skinned in Africa, American for most native populations of North and South America, and then Malay for Polynesians um, that were there. So he, he kind of just added on to the things that Linnaeus already had. And then we look at Samuel George Morton, who was an American anthropologist. He theorized in the mid 1800s that intelligence was linked to brain size. So what he ended up doing was he measured a large number of skulls from around the world. And his measurements found that the modern Caucasian skulls, um, that was the term he used for people that were of European descent, had the highest volume. Next after that were Chinese skulls, then African skulls, South Asian skulls, and American Indian skulls. And after all that, he concluded that what because um, white individuals had larger skulls, they thus were the superior race. And so the work of these types of scientists like Samuel Morton were to give racism legitimacy. This was all going on at the time of things like the French Revolution and the American Revolution, which were saying all men were created equal. But in order for slavery to occur, there needed to be some substantiation to say, not all men were created equal. Look, there's a biological reason why um, this doesn't exist or this isn't true and why people that are slaves are not people. They can be ruled over. So all these, the way that science was used was in order to substantiate slavery. Um, today we know that what Morton was saying, uh, Morton's theory of skull size measurements was deeply flawed. There wasn't a representative sample of human skulls. Um, there wasn't variation in the skulls. And he failed to understand the significance of human variation for several reasons, including institutional racism of the time and his own bigotry as well. And unfortunately, people that did uh, try to kind of speak out against him, like Friedrich Tiedemann, who was an anatomist, were ignored. Um, despite results and his failure to re replicate the work um, that was put out before on measuring skulls, uh, his, his work was largely ignored and it didn't attract any attention and it was dismissed as unscientific. And then we have people like Samuel Cartwright who defined mental illnesses um, and pathologized what it meant to be a slave. So he defined an illness called drapedomania um, and it was derived from the Greek words for runaway slave and crazy. And he used it to describe a new, uh, new curable mental disease. And when infected with this affliction, he claimed that enslaved black people were struck with an urge to flee bondage and seek freedom. And he further explained that the disease was triggered by enslavers who unwisely treated enslaved people as their equals. So he prescribed a treatment for that and his treatment was severe whipping and amputation of the toes. Clearly those claims were not scientific, but they were presented as medical facts. And this was the way that the medical institution at the time was used in order to substantiate and uphold these power dynamics. Dr. Cartwright's reports to try and justify and defend the institution of slavery was seen as natural. Um, and it was also claimed as optimal in order for whites 
white enslavers and black people to be enslaved. So you might be asking, why was it fashionable at the time? Um, and I think uh, Frederick Douglass, one of the most prominent 19th century opponents of slavery said it best, that the whole argument in defense of slavery becomes utterly worthless the moment that African, the African is proved to be equally a man with the European. The temptation, therefore, to read the Negro out of the human family is exceedingly strong. So those are the people whose work kind of substantiated the ideas of race that we live with today. And these origins of racism have continued to be historically ingrained in science and in medicine. One of the best ways to see how um, is that the belief of race has biological connotations still rooted in our culture, even though scientists agree that race is a social construct. Yet people still believe that there is some biological basis of race. And that is built off of all of these centuries of scientists um, trying to kind of uphold this power dynamic and power structure. One other example of the way that racialized ideology influenced medical practice is illustrated with the spirometer, which is something that is still used today. And so Josh Hutchinson uh, developed the spirometer in the 1840s. And he says he created it to assess fitness of military and police forces during early 19th century tuberculosis outbreak. When the spirometer was first created, it was seen as a tool of assessment, not necessarily a tool of, um, of treatment at all. It was to assess fitness assessment and then population surveillance as well. Over time, Josh Hutchinson defined the word, uh, coined the word vital capacity and was able, was able to start using that actually, the spirometer to actually start um, assessing premature mortality. The application of the spirometer though, came across to the United States to Samuel Cartwright. And he began using the spirometer in order to compare lung functions of black slaves to white slave owners. And he went one step further to actually create a hierarchy from that, saying that in his studies, he was finding that black slaves had worse lung functioning without taking into any account the fact that black individuals, that slaves at that time, were living in bleak living conditions, um, even the then emaciated slaves as well. Gold, Jay Gold also produced a study and came to the same conclusion as Cartwright, the idea that black people have deficient lungs. Um, it was even quantified to be 20% less than when compared to whites. And these ideas all set in motion from political leadership who were profiting off of institutions of slavery, included people like Thomas Jefferson, uh, pro, uh, who was a proponent of biological inferiority. And it was reinforced by Cartwright and further supported by Gold, and then became the framework for clinician handbooks by the early 1900s, when racial comparisons were compared in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1922. And if you look even today, on UpToDate, which many of us physicians and medical professionals use, in 2021, it still said, healthy African-Americans have spirometric, spirometric values that are approximately 12% lower than Americans of Caucasian descent of the same age, sex, and height. African-Americans have longer legs for a given height, and that was kind of, that's kind of the substantiation. Genetics and nutritional factors may also play a role in differences by race and ethnicity. But the focus here is not necessarily on that, it is on these other factors. So even today, we see the way that is ingrained into our systems. And racial ta taxonomy has been codified in science and medicine and used to justify everything from segregation to eugenics. Uh, J. Philip Rushton said, on average, Orientals are slower to mature, less fertile, less sexually active, less aggressive, and have larger brains and higher IQ scores. Blacks are at the other pole. Whites fall in the middle, but closer to Orientals than to Blacks. So we see he's using many of the same things that Linnaeus had even laid out in his uh, assertion of these different populations. Charles Murray, so the average black and white differ in IQ at every level of socioeconomic status, but they differ more at high levels of SES 
than at low levels. No one knows whether Hispanics will ever reach IQ parity with whites, but the prediction that new Hispanic immigrants will have low IQ children and grandchildren is difficult to argue against. Right. Jason Richwine. And what we can see there is that idea of, uh, of eugenics then coming into play as well. So all of these things, um, all these people are building their beliefs based off of uh, things that came before, the people, the scientists I've talked about who really put into motion the ideas of race. Now, moving a little bit beyond just bi the biological uh, kind of ramifications of race, we can look at how medicine has been complicit in other ways in health inequities. Um, the professionalization of the American medical kind of a uh, medical system culminated or uh, the establishment of the AMA, the American Medical Association in 1847. But segregation and racism within the medical profession existed at that time and it continued to profoundly impact communities of color. So there was uh, the AMA's Council on Medical Education years ago commissioned Dr. Abraham Flexner, who was with the Carnegie Foundation at the time, to look into the allegedly deplorable state of medical education. Flexner ended up visiting every single North American medical school and wrote a document that criticized the education of doctors. He proposed a framework for the proper pre preparation of physicians that resembled the curriculum of his alma mater, which was Johns Hopkins. That means two years of academics and then two years of clinical training. And many of us recognize that as a system that's used in medical school today. Um, in many medical schools, that's changing a lot. <laughs> but after the Flexner reforms, uh, many medical schools closed, including five of the seven established to train Black people and all but one that was training a woman. And that sharply limited the opportunities to enter into medicine for people that were from marginalized groups until the 1960 civil rights laws made discrimination by race and sex unlawful. unlawful. But the report was in part responsible for the disproportionately low number of Black physicians we see today. And imagine, in 1920, African-Americans were 2.5% of the U.S. physicians. And that number persisted until only recently, when representation rose from 2.2% in 2008 to about 5% today. And today, the number of Black men in medicine has continued to remain at low numbers. In fact, there were more Black men in medicine in 1970s than there were in 2014. I think that says a lot about how many of our systems have not grown. And the AMA, even before the Flexner Report, also barred Black physicians from joining and refused to force its constituent societies to admit Black doctors. So that wasn't why in response to the NMA, National Medical Association, was founded in 1895. Even up until the 1960s, though, um, many chapters and con constituent societies were closed to Blacks. And an official apology from the nationalization didn't happen until 2008. And recently, the AMA has recognized racism as a public health threat. So things are moving forward, but these are all examples of institutionalized discrimination in medicine. And those things continue to impact our systems today. So I think this is a good time to really step back and define um, what race, racism, and systemic racism means. Because I think especially today, when there's so much discourse around these words and the use of these words, it can get conflated and used in wrong ways. So race is a socially constructed classification. It assigns human worth and social status using white as a model of humanity for the purpose of establishing and maintaining privilege and power. Racism is any action, practice, law, speech, or incidents, which has the effect, whether it's intentional or not, of undermining anyone's human rights based on race or their actual or perceived ethnic or national origin or background where that background is that of a marginalized or historically subordinated group. Systemic racism is a form of racism embedded as a normal practice within society or an organization. It can lead to discrimination in criminal justice, employment, housing, politics, education, and healthcare, among other issues. 
And of course, we're focusing on healthcare today. So what we're really going to get into is what does systemic racism look like in healthcare and medicine today? So I like to split it up into three different areas. Um, and that's kind of how, how I approach my work when I'm putting together videos and I'm making different content. I look at medical education, I look at race-based medicine, and then I look at medical technology. And there's a lot of other ways to look at it, but I found these three ways as really salient to allow people that maybe have never heard about this to approach and talk about the issue. In medical education, um, I talk about semantics, which is using imprecise and non-biological labels that inaccurately conflate race and ancestry. Prevalence without context, meaning that we present um, different populations and racial and ethnic differences without adding the context of why those exist race-based diagnostic bias, where we present links between a racial group and a particular disease, and then the ways we pathologize race too. So the tendency to link minorities with increased disease burdens. And after this, I'm actually gonna show some of my videos so you can see specifically what are some examples of these. Race-based medicine um, is the idea that we still have calculations that use uh, race as a way to diagnose someone based on their biology. So for kidney functioning, which many people may have heard about, um, GFR, glomerular filtration rate, has a, a race multiplier added on top of it, where black individuals are assumed to have better kidney functioning, which could make it a little bit more, could make it more difficult for those patients to get access to kidney transplants when necessary. There's a whole list of other places it's found as well. Then there's medical technology. Um, so things like pulse oximeters, which uh, have shown not to be equal, uh, to read e uh, as accurately on black patients as patients with lighter skin. Or Google AI Health, which created an app which uh, didn't, it didn't put enough inputs of uh, images from Fitzpatrick 5 and 6, which is darker skin tones, into their app. And then dermatology, which I think is a very visceral way to understand it, where search engines lack diverse images of skin, of skin conditions, as well as our medical textbooks. So I'm going to take a pause there, and I want to go to my videos. So especially for those who've never seen any of my videos, you can kind of see, how do I talk about these issues? Because I see short form content as the best way to reach the audience who've never heard about this. So let me just open it up. But so this will be some videos um, just from over the past two uh, year that I've been creating content about racial biases in medicine. What does racial bias in medicine look like? I've always been curious as a medical student about the racial biases that impact different populations and how those manifest into real world consequences. I started a TikTok and Instagram video series called Racial Biases in Medicine that have now reached the phones of millions of people. In short 30 second clips, I made it my goal to share different biases that can be found in the medical field. Here's a compilation of some of the videos that I've put together. What does racial bias in medicine look like? This is a pulse oximeter. It measures your blood oxygen saturation level and also helps guide medical decision making. But studies have shown that it doesn't treat all skin color equally. Because of differences in how the skin absorbs light, black patients are more than three times as likely to have inaccurate, overestimated oxygen saturation levels compared to white patients. And that has clinical significance for COVID, since one of the main diagnostic criteria for COVID-19 is shortness of breath and low oxygen levels. Understanding racial bias in medicine can help save lives. What does racial bias look like in medicine? Episode two. Black patients are four times as likely to suffer from kidney failure, but they spend longer when waiting for kidney transplants than white patients. One of the reasons why could be a formula called the glomerular filtration rate, GFR, that incorporates race. The lower your GFR, the worse your kidney's functioning. A low GFR is what qualifies you for a kidney transplant. But in the GFR equation, there's a race adjustment that increases the GFR number for black patients. Because a higher GFR number indicates better kidney functioning, the race correction could be overestimating GFR, resulting in Black patients receiving less care and missing necessary treatment. 
Understanding racial bias in medicine can save lives. What does racial bias look like in medicine? Episode 3. In 2016, a study at the University of Virginia showed how racial bias impacts pain treatment. The study tested false beliefs about biological differences by asking health professionals questions like, are black people's skin thicker than white people's skin? Here's the crazy thing. 50% of the surveyed medical students and medical residents endorsed at least one of these false beliefs. Those that endorsed false beliefs rated the pain of a black versus white patient as lower and were less accurate in their overall recommendations for treatment. Understanding racial bias in medicine can save lives. I'm a third year medical student right now. And one of the things I often think about is how medical schools inadvertently perpetuate racial biases. The example I like to use is sickle cell, which is a group of red blood cell disorders. In medical school, we're primed to think of sickle cell disease as affecting only black populations. But the reason why so many black people have sickle cell is that having the sickle cell allele makes people resistant to malaria. It's not race that predisposes people to sickle cell. Instead, it's having ancestors that have lived in areas that have had high rates of malaria. And that includes way more than just black people. This map from 2015 shows the amount of newborns with sickle cell anemia. We see that in countries in Africa, there's just as high an incidence rate as places like India and Central America. There needs to be a change in how we talk about medical incidents of disease through race to ancestry. Racializing diseases is inaccurate. In the United States, black newborn babies are two times as likely to die as white newborns during delivery. But a study published in July 2020 showed that when black doctors deliver black babies, the mortality rate is cut in half, especially in complicated cases. The same relationship was not found between white doctors and white newborns, and there was no improvement in maternal mortality when birthing mothers share the same race as their physician. Why a doctor's race makes a difference is complicated and needs more research, but understanding why can literally save lives. In people with darker skin, health disparities due to under-recognition diseases have long been documented. Here's an example. Lyme disease is a bacterial infection that can be carried by ticks and cause a characteristic bullseye rash. But medical students are often taught to recognize what it looks like on white skin, not dark skin. See the difference? If you Google Lyme disease bullseye rash, most of the images you'll see are all white. Under-recognition causes African-Americans to be 10% more likely to show late manifestations of the disease, such as neurologic or heart problems. Yeah, for sure. It's absolutely insane how darker skin is often not shown as a pathology. They'll only use one standard color. Just to give one example of that, I'm a medical student right now. I remember in my first year, we were talking about cyanosis, which is when the skin goes blue. There's a ton of different reasons why it can happen. But I remember thinking to myself, well, my skin's not going to be blue if I'm cyanotic. So how do you look at it for black patients? And then I had this like internal debate of if I ask the professor this question or do I look like that person that's just trying to uh, talk about like skin color because I'm black, you know, um, but I decided to ask the question. And the professor had a great response. He said, look at your nail beds, right? You can tell if it's cyanotic there. Look at your eyes. You can use mucous membranes, different parts of the body too. And afterwards, some of my classmates came up to me and said, wow, Joel, thanks for asking that question. We never would have even thought about that or thought about the different ways to think about it. And I just kept thinking to myself, if I hadn't asked that question, would anyone have ever learned that? Black women in the United States are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women. Studies have shown that these inequities are related to socioeconomic factors, but also institutional and individual racism. For example, in 2017, tennis star Serena Williams experienced a pulmonary embolism after giving birth to her daughter. But initially, the team that was taking care of her dismissed her concerns. These implicit and explicit biases impact whether Black women attend their postpartum visits and could in part explain these racial disparities. Last week, I made a video on melanoma and how it disproportionately kills Black populations. I want to make sure to put together a video so you know how it looks like as well. In medicine, we use ABCDE in order to diagnose melanoma. 
I won't go through all of these, but if you have an asymmetric mold that's larger than six millimeters and seems to be different colors, make sure you get that checked out because it could be melanoma. But here's the important thing for black communities. There is a form of melanoma called acro-lentiginous melanoma. This type of melanoma is the least common type, but the most common type in African-Americans. This type of cancer can be found on your palms, on the bottom of your feet, and sometimes even under your nails. This is what it looks like on someone's foot. It can often be mistaken as a bruise. Here's how it can look like on your nails. In 1981, Bob Marley died of this cancer because he was diagnosed with it too late. And today, just like in the 80s, Black patients are far less likely to be diagnosed and cured in time. Spirometry is a test that measures how much air a person can blow out after a deep breath. It's one of the main ways to test lung function. But in medicine, there's a correction for race that assumes that Black and Asian individuals have lower lung volumes compared to white people. The race algorithm can adjust results by as much as 15%. That means what's considered unhealthy for a white patient is considered healthy for a Black patient. That influences treatment plans and can cause Black patients to be less likely to receive things like lung transplants. Some studies even think it could be exacerbating racial disparities in COVID-19 recovery. These two girls are a perfect example of why race is a social construct. Hear me out. Millie and Marsha are sisters. In fact, they're fraternal twin sisters, but many people would look at them and think they're not related. In fact, you'd probably assume that Millie is white and that Marsha is black, but this is their dad, who we probably would say is racially black. But because we see these two girls differently, they'd be treated differently by the hospital systems. For Marsha, U.S. racial corrections would say that she should have different kidney, lung, and heart functioning than her sister. That means compared to her twin sister, Marsha is less likely to have a kidney transplant, less likely to have a heart transplant, is assumed to have worse lung functioning just because of her race. The problem is, even though they're genetically not any different than any other pair of siblings, the medical system would treat them differently. And that doesn't make any sense. Hopefully that gave you an idea of some of the things I've been talking about. And I see short form content like this, 30 seconds of things that are charged and make you think about the world in a different way as ways that we can increase people's attention and understanding of issues that are going on in medicine. Now, that was a lot of information right there, a lot of different clips and videos, but I wanted to make sure to give you an idea of the vast array of things I'm talking about on social media um, when it comes to kind of these, these issues and the way that can be presented in a way that uh, can bring audiences who have never heard about them in on the conversation as well. So as you noted there, I talked about things like semantics, um, the way that Caucasian, Black, African-American, and Asian are used as labels to denote biological differences. I talked about prevalence without context, how students are taught that Black patients may have higher rates of asthma than white patients, but not referencing um, the effects on, uh, of asthma because of residential segregation or unequal access to high quality housing and healthcare in the same breath. Uh, I talked about race-based diagnostic bias, um, how students are primed to think of things like sickle cell disease as affecting only Black people instead of thinking of it as common in populations at risk for malaria. And conversely, uh, in other diseases too, seeing that cystic fibrosis only occurs in Caucasian populations, studies have shown that Black patients that have cystic fibrosis are more likely to get diagnosed late because they're not, it's not thought of on the differential as highly. And then race-based clinical guidelines, um, where we're taught to, that the first-line treatment for all antihypertensive drugs in Black patients is a different first-line treatment than in white patients, um, but not exposing us at the same time to literature that questions these practices and misleading interpretations. And actually on this last point, there was just a study that was released this month um, 
that was that talks about differences in hypertension medication prescribing for Black Americans and their association with hypertension outcomes. Um, currently, as I mentioned, the national guidelines recommend a different therapy for Black patients with uh, with hypertension without comorbid, comorbid, well, comorbidities. Sorry. Um, and how they did the study was they linked retrospective obser observational cohort data using two years of EHR data, and it was comprised of patients between 18 to 85 um, with hyper with hypertension on one or two drug regimens that included ACEs, ARBs, thiazide diuretics, um, calcium channel blockers. And what they found in the study was that providers did follow race-based guidelines, yet hypertension control for Black Americans was still worse than non-Black Americans. And they questioned whether an individualized approach to hypertension therapy for all patients may be way more important than race-based guidelines, seeing as there wasn't any actual difference. And so um, it's just another interesting thing, thing to think about of how we're educated to think about race and to diagnose based on racial lines. And then, of course, there's the racial biases that we've heard about in pain assessment. I'm sure many people have heard, heard things like this where Black people don't feel pain. And there was a recent study that was done just, I think, six years, six years ago, it would be now, um, that looked at um, kind of the, the false beliefs that people had. In the study, they looked at 222 medical students and residents gave them a survey and asked them questions uh, like, uh, do you think black people have thicker skin? Do they have the same nerve endings? And 50% of people endorse at least one of the false beliefs. Those that endorsed the false belief were more likely to not give patients um, that were black pain medication at the same rates as white patients. And that connects to a lot of different things from sickle cell. Um, this was a tweet that was just tweeted out a few days ago, January 19th. Someone saying that there's, their sister was admitted into the hospital for a sickle cell crisis, wasn't admitted until the morning, was crying due to pain, and the doctor said that she was crying because she's trying to score nar narcotics. And on TikTok, one of the things I've seen so many times is patients that have sickle cell literally recording themselves crying in the emergency department, begging for help, and people saying and literally telling them to their faces, you're looking for drugs right now. It also connects to the fact that in electronic medical records, Black patients are more likely to have negative patient descriptors, um, things like non-adherent or um, crazy or different words that are used to, to negatively depict patients. And as providers, when those get passed down to us, that's the first thing we read in our first impression of a patient. This is another story time video I talked about um, in skin thickness and bias in medicine. But what I really want to focus so on second year, was the fact that this a video like this was viewed over 782,000 times. Um, but mostly what I think is amazing about these kind of social media apps is the comments that are left on, on them and the ways that people interact with the content. So currently TikTok um, is an AI-driven immersive feed if you're not on it. It has over 1 billion active users and 59% of users are between 16 to 24. Instagram, which I also use, has 1 billion monthly active users, and 67% of U.S. adults um, aged 18 to 29 currently use it. Instagram videos get two times as much engagement as photos, so it's a perfect place to talk about content like this, uh, which needs sometimes someone explaining it, not just like a picture or an infographic. And since starting my um, TikTok about a year ago now, uh, I've made over 350 videos on all sorts of topics, um, 389,000 followers, over 10.4 million likes, 45 million video impressions, and 50,000 uh, comments. And the comments for me are, I love going through them and seeing what people are thinking because um, it goes to show, especially we're in our own echo chamber sometimes, not understanding how these things are um, being perceived in the general public. But when I look at the comments, I see that people are saying things like, I've always thought that black people's skin is thicker than that of white people. And that Asian skin is thinner compared to white person's skin. 
or people saying, I've had people tell me I don't feel pain because I'm Latina. It drives me insane. And someone saying, in nursing school, we were not shown any skin conditions on dark skin. Such a shame. Someone saying, I'm also a med student. I'm from Spain. And my professor said, and I quote, it's like that for Black people. However, for normal people, other people agreeing that's necessary, uh, the expansion of medical literature and education, and many other people saying that they haven't thought about it. Um, so thinking that, some, that they're getting this content, even though they're not in the medical field. And I think there's also a, a huge opportunity for meaningful impact um, in this space as well. So people have been saying things like um, that they're white and during lectures on Durham, they've now started asking more, why aren't we learning about conditions on black skin and other races? This specific commenter says the lecturer was silent. They didn't know, they didn't know how to respond. Because uh, oftentimes it's not something that's at the front of our minds. Someone else said I'd gone to a fight with a professor when he insisted black people don't feel pain as much, but couldn't provide any neurological evidence. Someone else said, no lie. They told us in nursing school that black people express pain more dramatically aka they might not be in as much pain as they are expressing. And those types of things are actually still written in textbooks. There was a textbook just a few years ago that was removed after people saw that they were still putting that kind of language inside a textbook. Other people saying, because of your page, I've made the decision to go to medical school. I'm in my early 30s with two children, but I'm going to, I'm going to try. And others saying, your ABCD um, of melanoma saved my life. I had the mole removed from the bottom of my foot earlier this year. So the direct impact that these types of things can have um, on patients who may not be getting this information. And I had to throw one more in there, uh, Jason Derulo, if anyone knows who he is, he's a singer, commented on one of my videos, so uh, that made my day. But I'm not the only one using social media, and many people are doing it in different creative ways as well. This is Lashira Nolan. She was the first Black female um, at uh, first Black female president at Harvard uh, Medical School, and she takes to Twitter to talk about her issues, and she's used um, New England Journal of Medicine, where she's written uh, think, think pieces on how medical education is missing the bullseye when it comes to skin conditions and things like Lyme disease, how we're not often taught what it looks like on different skin tones. And I'm a huge proponent that social media can humanize physicians, can build a space for advocacy, can eliminate barriers for patient education, and can create opportunities for mentorship as well. I've already talked about some of these, so I'll, uh, I'll kind of skip over GFR. Um, vaginal birth after cesarean is another equation, race-based equation that exists, um, where for African-American and Hispanic women, uh, there's, there was a correction factor, it's been changed now. There was a correction factor that subtracted from the overall likelihood of a successful VBAC. So that women that were African, that identified as African-American or Hispanic were assigned a lower chance of getting a vaginal birth after having a cesarean than someone that was white. So literally all, all other things held equal if you change the race, that was the determining factor for many people. NFL concussion payouts, I think this one's so fascinating because we think often uh, of these things affecting people's health, but we don't think about how it affects kind of other things like our financial health as well. So there was an NFL policy that assumed that Black players already started at a baseline lower cognitive functioning level compared to non-Black players. So when a football player got a uh, concussion and they had to prove that their concussion was actually making them not be at the same level of cognitive uh, functioning as they were before, Black players had to actually prove that more than someone that was white because of this equation that was used. And so it made it harder for many Black NFL players to receive equal compensation for their injuries because they had to show that worse cognitive functioning. And then even in heart failure, risk is considered as a factor, um, where three points are added to the risk score if a patient is identified as non-Black. And that addition increases the estimated probability of death for non-Black patients with acute heart failure. And many of my issues with these types of equations is, because, is that, A, many of them are Black versus non-Black, 
no other race. And then B, um, they ignore the fact that not everyone's a binary. It's, it's not black or white or other things. Many people are mixed. And how can you quantify if it's 60%, if it's 30%, if it's 40%? Yet this is exactly what these equations tried to do. And in the past year slash two years, so much has happened. The GFR equation, there's now a new equation that doesn't use race anymore. The VBAC calculator um, has now removed race from the childbirth calculator in order to try and advance equity. And the NFL had a lawsuit for those, those, those players that uh, weren't able to get their concussion settlement. So it's a start, but it's absolutely insane to think that this has only all happened in the past one to two years. And medical technology is kind of that next frontier that's being tackled. Pulse oximeters, as I mentioned, um, can uh, can treat and show uh, kind of block, blood oxygen saturation levels differently on black versus white patients. Google, Google AI Health as well wasn't including images on darker skin types. In terms of pulse oximeters, the FDA now just in 2021, once again, very recent in the past year, has now released um, data that has released uh, limitations of the pulse oximeters for people who have darker skin tones, um, especially when it comes to COVID because it has significance for COVID. And then also for the Google AI Health, they actually pulled their app from the App Store and are going to be working on it. It's funny, I actually just had a call last week with Google Health, I was talking to them about it. And they're now trying to work with hospitals in the United States, as well as hospitals abroad, in order to get more data and get more images before they put this product back out. But it's just unfortunate that it had to take so much outcry and backlash before they went and decided to do that. And other medical students are talking about this as well. Uh, Naomi and Kinsey, she's a medical student at University of Washington, and she was instrumental in getting the GFR equation to change. And when asked about how they made it happen, she said, we made it by questioning lecturers. We did it by not letting the issue go and continuing to push discussions in class about the use of this equation. We did it by having meetings with teaching faculty, sending articles to them, forcing discussions in small groups, and making use of the advocacy framework that we built. I think that's so key because we are in this space where so many of us have the power to actually make a difference. It's whether we're actually gonna build and coalition build to identify the issue, create that research that shows that it needs to be changed and actually stepping out and doing it. And right now I, I, I'd argue that it's many medical students and residents and young doctors, um, primarily people of color who have not seen themselves represented in the system that are the ones pushing forward and trying to make this change. Other people outside the United States are also making change. Um, there's one of my friends, Malone McQuende. He created a book called Mind the Gap, which became really popular a few years ago. Um, I think it was three years ago now. And he was interviewed actually by Angelina Jolie about it as well. But Mind the Gap was um, a handbook to try and talk about uh, skin conditions on black and brown skin. And now he's going and creating a new app called Hutano, um, which in his native language means Shona and translates directly to health. And it's gonna be a, so, a health social platform where people from all over the world can connect to form communities and discuss their different conditions when they haven't had a place to do that before. Other international medical students, um, I'm sure many people may have seen this image already uh, of, a black, of, a, of a black fetus. And this is a Nigerian medical student who was disrupting the status quo by portraying anatomy, physiology, pathology on black skin. One of his illustrations, this one went viral, but he has so many other illustrations on his Instagram page that he's put out before. So I think we all have the opportunity to be a voice for patients beyond just the hospital room by looking at health policy, better health outcomes, patient education, and demonstrating leadership skills as well. When I think about what we should be reaching for, we should be striving for, we should be trying to reach equity where everyone gets the support that they need, not necessarily um, just support that um, is just given, but is given in, in with direct intentional 
thoughts in mind for what that community, what that person needs in order to be able to see over that fence as you can see inside these images here. And then the ultimate goal is to work, reach towards liberation where we can tear down um, kind of the, the walls that, uh, the fences that prevent us from seeing things and actually all see it together. Equality is not the same as equity. And like I said, what we're ultimately striving for is justice and then liberation. And so just really quickly, um, this is gonna be wrapping it up. I think things that we can be doing to make sure that we're uh, working towards this, hiring a diverse workforce, training staff to better understand what creates healthy communities, moving from race-based medicine, which is currently used, to race-conscious medicine, and always considering structural and social determinants of disease when discussing the causes of unequal disease burdens. So in summary, even despite history's influence on disparities that we see today in medicine and healthcare, we have opportunities to address the disparities present today. Many of them are integrated into the systems that we live in every single day. But by recognizing them, by working together, by dismantling them, we can hopefully reach a place where we understand these issues, become conscious of it, and begin to work and strive towards um, a better world where patients can see themselves in every aspect of health. So thank you so much for allowing me here. And I think we have some questions we're going to jump into. Yeah, thank you so much, Joel. Wow. Um, thank you. One question that's come up a couple times, how can we combat these false beliefs when I visit my PCP if it is felt that I'm not receiving adequate care because of my race? Yeah, I mean, I think the wonderful thing about medicine is you can choose who your physician is. If you don't feel comfortable being, being with doctors about um, a patient-physician relationship, it's nothing less. And you can choose to go somewhere where you feel as if you are seen and heard. So whenever people ask me that, I say, um, if you don't feel comfortable with your current provider, find a new one, find, or let them know that you don't feel comfortable. I think the more that we are honest and share our opinions and our feelings, the more we're able to get the better care that we need. Yeah, the more that we're able to get the care that we need. Absolutely. And do you have any other specific suggestions for how we should interact with medical providers to ensure we're getting the best care? Yeah, I saw this video on TikTok that I loved that talked about when you go to a physician, you feel like you're not being heard, asking for what their differential diagnosis uh, is. For the providers in the room, we all know that when we went to medical school, we had to learn, that was the first thing we learned. What is your differential? If someone comes in with chest pain, you're thinking about the different things it could be from GERD to a heart attack um, to a medication uh, that could be causing it as well. And so asking that physician, what's your differential diagnosis if you feel like you're not being heard or they're just dismissing you in that moment? And that will allow that physician to really lay out well, maybe I thought about a heart attack. Maybe I should probably order an EKG right now. You know, it'll push it a little bit further to get that conversation going as a patient. As a physician, I like even, even though I'm only a medical student, and that's what I'm supposed to be doing is practicing the differential diagnosis. I love to share that with patients. Like when I'm in a room and I'm talking with them and they're like, oh, so what do you think might be going on? I literally walk them through my thinking. And I think people appreciate that. And I've heard people say, my physician hasn't done this before. Um, like they haven't walked me through the things that they're thinking. They kind of just jump to that final conclusion. Um, I, don't, I don't think it loses trust at all, but I think it builds trust by allowing them to see your thinking and know that they're, they're looking through all possible options um, that could be going on. Yeah, those are great suggestions. Thank you. Um, I, there's a lot more in the chat. Um, I want to give a chance to turn it over to Jay, though, for a couple of questions. Jay, are you able to jump on? I'm so sorry. Absolutely. Um, I did want to ask, where should prospective medical students look for scholarship opportunities, you know, and particularly those intended for Black students and people of color? Yes, love that question. Didn't talk about scholarships at all, but that is huge to me. Love scholarships. Um, NMF, National Medical Foundation, 
has wonderful scholarships for black students. And I'd say start there. Other programs like the AMA has some programs that are specific for students as well, um, uh, students of color and that are from underrepres underrepresented backgrounds. Look into your specific schools too. Many times they have it. And I, I've noticed a lot more organizations just in the community um, are starting to put together these different types of scholarship funds, especially because right now healthcare is on top of mind for so many people. So asking your school to reach out or reaching out to places like a Kiwanis or Rotary um, that may have access to some of those, uh, those opportunities. But National Medical Foundation, I know they definitely have scholarships every single year. It's a robust community. Um, there's a lot of alumni out there as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, what advice would you offer to students considering medicine as a career? Mm -hmm. Depending on what stage you are, I always tell people get that experience, that clinical experience. Um, it was so instrumental for me. When I was in college, I ended up doing an internship at Howard University Hospital, which is an HBCU, historically black college and university, um, during my junior summer. And I, I truly think that's what kept me going in medicine. I I don't know if my parents are here right now, um, but there were so many times where I was going to drop out. I was going to drop medicine. I was like, I don't want to do this. I could be doing it to tech. My brother works at Microsoft and he's making a lot more than all of us. Um, but like there are so many other opportunities that I could have gone into. But that summer, I worked with a team of all black surgeons um, that were orthopedic surgeons. And it was absolutely wonderful. So incredible to actually be feel like I was being uplifted. And I remember I came back that next year afterwards and felt so motivated to kind of get back to work. So my biggest suggestion for people who want to go to medical field is get direct get, get direct um, patient uh, access. So if you can do clinical research or if you can do uh, like working and shadowing with a doctor and seeing if they maybe let you do a little bit more, um, seeing what an OR is like, seeing what the day-to-day -day of a hospital is like, all those things can A, build your application, but also it allows you to remember why you're doing it um, and why you study those long hours in the first place. Awesome. And you're making such a huge and much needed impact. So we thank you so much for hanging in there for us. Thank you. Um, <laughs> how do you envision the pathway to a representative healthcare workforce? Mm -hmm. I think it starts with um, building a diverse workforce. So when I came to my medical school, as I mentioned, I was the, the first black, um, black student at my school. And then one other was there in my, in my year as well. Um, and so I would say a diverse workforce, once it has three steps. One, a school or an institution needs to really be looking for that talent that's out there because it exists. I think to say that there isn't people out there that are, that are talented and gifted and ready to go into medicine is wrong. It's whether you're attracting them. They might be going into different industries, but they could come to medicine if, um, if they're sought for. So that's the first thing. Second is once they get there, how are you keeping them there? Are you doing things to make sure that the environment is safe and sound for those individuals? When I came to my school, I started a student national medical association on campus. I served as my school student body president. I started a program where I um, created a, a pipeline where every single student that came and got an interview at our school could meet with a student um, and match with them based on their interests. So um, if you wanted to meet with the, the women's group, you could do that. If you wanted to meet with SNMA as um, a student of color group, you could do that. Uh, and we made sure that students, especially those that were underrepresented, knew about those resources. And then three, once you graduate or once you're in that school, are those students then reaching back to their communities as well and doing more work? So is, are they doing mentoring? Are they reaching out to the communities? I think all three of those things need to be done in order to keep a good um, line, a pipeline going to keep people coming in and um, wanting to stay inside the system. Because I think as many people would attest to, it's mentors that got us where we are. People that reached and said, you have potential, let's take you there. 
I love that feedback. Um, can you offer any advice for those pursuing medical careers, you know, who are facing adversity? How do you find support and mentorship? Yeah, I'd say uh, if you see someone that you you kind of vibe with in some way, reach out to them. Uh, I think people are always looking for um, for people to to mentor, especially if you're in a local area and there's someone that you see that represents things that you've done. If you both went to the same high school and now there's somewhere you want to be, find those commonalities and don't be afraid to kind of email or reach out. Um, and some and also be open to random opportunities that come your way too. I think there's sometimes mentors that we don't see coming, but they just appear. And just to give a quick story on that, um, after my first year of medical school, I was supposed to go and do a program at New York University, ended up being canceled. Um, I had met this surgeon, orthopedic surgeon named Dr. Gunther, uh, pre the previous year, and I'd been just emailing back and forth kind of randomly. Had only met him once at a, co at a conference that I went to. After I told him, though, that my internship had been canceled, he reached out to me and said, hey, what do you think about coming to live in Charlottesville, North Carolina with my family for eight weeks, and we can just do an, a, a random internship together? And I told my parents this, and they're like, you met this guy once and he's doing what? <laughs> um, but I kind of took the leap of faith, ended up doing it. And it was an absolutely incredible summer. His two twin boys are like my little brothers now. I talk to them all the time and he's continued to be a mentor all over these past few years. So I'd say keep in contact with people. And even if they're not a mentor for you in that moment, the opportunity may arise where something like that happens where you don't expect it, but because you were just being open and being honest and just wanting and showing true enthusiasm about that person, something may happen out of that. Your insight is so invaluable. So thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you. And Joel, I'll finish up with one more question. Um, for the allies in the audience, how can allies show support for Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, both in and out of the medical field? Where would mm -hmm. you point them? Yeah. Um, I think in terms, if you're talking about like kind of things you can learn from, there's so many books out there that I could suggest. In terms of things you can do, I think listening, finding spaces like this, where it's people sharing their own stories, people sharing their own experiences, um, those, I think that's instrumental. In terms of resources to read uh, that are specifically related to medicine, I would say Killing the Black Body is one of the first places I always uh, push people to, to really get that knowledge of what are some things that are going on in the field of healthcare. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say use social media. I mean, I, I am guilty of, that's kind of my bias to social media, but I think so many people are talking about these issues on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, and I think you can always find it and seek it out. And to be an ally means to listen to those stories um, and when appropriate, uh, be able to jump in and help out as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we're almost out of time. I think I'll turn it over to, um, to Lisa for our closing, unless there's any final comments. Lisa, we can't hear you quite yet. <laughs> Sorry about that. Again, thank you to Joe, and of course to you for joining us this evening. You can continue to follow Joe's work on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook. We want to thank our caucus members and Allies for Change group for their continuous support. If you'd like to join our great organization or link to the Allies for Change group within the Alaska Black Caucus, please visit us at the Alaska.caucus, alaskablackcaucus.com. We would also like to thank the Municipality of Anchorage. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the author 
and do not necessarily reflect the views of the municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. Be sure to join us right here next Sunday for a dialogue with the Anchorage Assembly. Until next time, good night, everybody. Alaska Black Caucus, authentic, bold, committed.